Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, we listen back to my conversation with Nick Mott and Justin Engel about how we adapt to wildfire, the devastating losses from the wildfire in Maui, the deadliest in the U.S. in more than a century, and in Canada, the summer of fire that at times has sent smoke as far down as the southern U.S., have reminded us that intense, long-lasting wildfires are a new normal, something Californians are all too familiar with, and we can feel powerless in the face of it, but Mott and Angle say there are things we can do to adapt to an increasingly fire-prone world. Their new book, This is Wildfire, is a guidebook of sorts on how to lessen fire's destructiveness. Join us. Welcome to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Co-authors Nick Mott and Justin Engel say every wildfire has at least two stories. One story is about the damage and devastation to humans wrought by the flames. The other story, sometimes at odds with the first, is about fire's positive impacts on ecosystems. Fire is something we need to suppress and control, they write, yet it's a natural force we need more of. Angle and Mott's new book is about reconciling those perspectives and finding practical ways to adapt to, quote, an increasingly fiery future. It's called This is Wildfire, How to Protect Yourself, Your Home, and Your Community in the Age of Heat. Justin Angle, welcome to Forum. Good to be here. Thank you. Justin Angle is professor at the University of Montana College of Business. Nick Mott is a journalist and podcast producer. Welcome to you, Nick. Thank you so much for having me. So one of the things I've taken away from your book is how you ask us at multiple points to reframe our thinking, our thinking about wildfires, for one, like how fire is both destructive and also rejuvenating for ecosystems. Nick, why do you think it's so critical that we recognize these two truths, as you say? I, mean, I think it's so critical to recognize both those truths because we've had this sort of unidimensional, like monolithic view of wildfire for about a hundred years. You know, starting with the Big Burn, which was this huge conflagration of fires in the Northwest back in 1910. The country decided, like, it's time to put out all the wildfires. These things are bad, and that ideology, due in large part to like this big PR effort on on behalf of the Forest Service 
really took hold. And today, whenever we hear about wildfires, it's because they're bad. It's we hear about the destruction in Maui, the smoke coming from Canada, or the Marshall Fire, you know, a couple winters ago, or, uh, you know, the things that make the headlines are these terribly negative, destructive wildfires. And that's just not conducive to getting us out of this situation. Like it's all doom and gloom and not solution oriented. You know, people have lived with wildfire as long as there have been people studies show that indigenous people used wildfire to enhance ecosystems and for cultural purposes and there's a huge revitalization of that knowledge today and you know ecosystems evolved with fire by putting them out we're making fires worse as well and of course we don't want to say let every fire burn and we don't want to say you know all fires good fire because that's not the case hmm. we need to recognize both that that there that that you know fire can be beneficial and that fire can also be destructive Justin, is there anything you'd add about why we need to recognize both truths or even how? <laughs> well, I think, as Nick mentioned, it's that perspective is not only solution oriented, but it also it, it it helps us recognize our role in getting us to this moment. You know, the exclusion of fire from the landscape has clogged our forests and it has created this expectation not only that all fire is bad, but that the government will put fire out when it comes. And the, the sort of scale of fires we're seeing now, a lot of the fires in California are, are at a scale and under such conditions, both climactically and with the, the, the density in our forests, that we can't put them out. So we need to right. come up with another way of operating. And so this book tries to you know, talk about that at, at both a systemic level, but also at the individual level. Yeah. So as natural as these fires are, as beneficial as they can be, uh, you talk about how forests have been adapted to burn in cycles. And as much as we've contributed to the intensity of these fires with some of the decisions that we've made, the reality is that the fires are worse because of climate change. Can you just review why from a climate perspective, Nick? Sure. So there are a number of factors and it's not just climate either. So, I mean, at a really basic level, more heat equals more fires. So, you know, we talked with one uh, with one scientist who drills cores and lake sediments, like these big cores of mud, and you can get climate data from tens or even hundreds of thousands of years ago. And what she found is that whenever the climate was warmer, there's more fire on the landscape. So the mechanisms there are heat and drought. So that's, that's really clear, um, you know, <laughs> with less water and more heat, there's there's more fire. But also if we think about a little more subtly, things like less snowpack in the mountains or the snowpack that is there is melting off soon, sooner as or getting rushed off by spring, spring rain that used to fall as spring snow. You know, there are also more terms like vapor pressure deficit that uh, we're seeing that, that is fancy term for basically the how much moisture the air can hold that's being affected by climate too. We're also seeing, you know, it's staying hotter and drier at night as well. So wildfires are sort of closing the window in which we can sort of get a handle on fires is closing. So the sort of nighttime when you could firefighters could hold things back a little better, that window is not as substantial as it was. And as we're talking about climate, it's also important to talk about other human cause factors here. So we've already mentioned, you know, congested forest, which is true in many ecosystems, but not all. But also we're building more we're in fire prone areas. People yeah. are moving there. So that's making us much more vulnerable. And, you know, as people are, have manipulated the landscape, 
We've also done things like introduce non-native and invasive species that fill in natural gaps in fuel. You could think about cheatgrass across the West or a lot of that tall grass in Hawaii that led to the destination in, in Maui or the devastation in Maui recently. Yes. Um, a good point about how the destructiveness, of course, is worsened by the fact that we build and, and live in areas that are more prone to fire. But but um, build on that, Justin, in terms of how you reflect, you know, from this context on what happened in Maui. Gosh, well, you know, Maui is, is one of those fires that's sort of shocking, but not surprising in a way that the, you know, the for for folks not familiar with that landscape, the notion of a wildfire in Hawaii in general is, is kind of at odds with our conception of of rainforests and lushness and, and all the images we typically see from the islands. But there are dry sides to those islands and there are fire seasons. And in the case of what happened on Maui, you had, you know, fires started and that's a normal thing, but they were accelerated and um, harder to control based on the vegetation that was largely invasive species that were allowed to sort of flourish and close the gaps in the, the defensible space between the community and the higher elevation forest. And, you know, when those sorts of conditions are met with the hurricane level winds, but not the hurricane level precipitation, the recipe for a rapidly moving fire just just kind of came into existence. Now, the the notion that we have fire in a place like Maui shouldn't be all that surprising, but the conditions that accelerated it were somewhat unique. That said, we can continue to expect more of these sorts of events. Now, the death and destruction, you know, th there are other human cause factors attributable to that, lack of communication, some, some infrastructure problems. Um, however, there's, you know, there's prominent pictures of the miracle house that um, I think that's what a lot of folks have called it. The one home or a single home that that survived when a lot of homes around it um, were destroyed. And that house had um, a lot of features that make it resilient to wildfire, a metal roof and you know, little vegetation around it and some other attributes that made that house more resilient. So even a fire that is as devastating and as fast moving as the fire in Maui there are still things, a good number of things we can do to um, endure fires like that. Yes. One of the core focus areas of your book is that while fire can seem so big and unstoppable, it doesn't have to be the case, that it can make us feel powerless, but we're not actually so. And in the same vein, uh, Nick, around how this book tries to reframe, reframe a lot of our thinking about wildfire. One of the things that you talk about is reframing our thinking about our homes. And this is actually inspired by someone named Jack Cohen, who basically said, instead of thinking your home as a victim of wildland fire, think of it as a potential participant in the continuation of wild land fire and that wildland fire is more a home ignition problem than anything else. Can you just talk a little bit about that reframing? Yeah. So you mentioned Jack Cohen. He's a retired Forest Service researcher. And he was one of the first people to start thinking about why homes are burning. And he was studying this stuff like all the way back in the 1980s when we weren't seeing as severe of fire seasons. 
but he know, but he, you know, we would occasionally see communities impacted, you know, in the nineties, we saw Oakland impacted. Um, we, and he noticed that it was never or almost never the sort of big wall of flames engulfing a community that made the community burn. You know, when you think of a fire, it's, you think of like this fire encroaching and then gradually overtaking the house, but that's not what's happening. Cohen noticed. He noticed that rather what's happening is embers are floating off of the more distant flame front, sometimes a number of miles and landing on homes that then ignite and that then ignite the whole community. So when you think about the problem that way, he says, the problem isn't just the fire out there. The problem is where we've built and how we've built. And so there are a number of things we can do to build more resiliently and make our communities res resilient to the inevitable, which is wildfire. Like wildfire is going to happen. And uh, those there are no, we can talk about a number of those things, but you know the basics are roofs are a big, huge surface area that are often wood. So you know things like metal roofs can go a long way. That's of course expensive. There are a lot of really basic things you can do, like getting rid of the the brush and pine needles and leaves in your in your gutters on the roof, or getting your gutters getting rid of your gutters entirely if your architecture permits it. You know, sealing up the any like the eave vents and soffits in your house, any openings that an ember could go into with nice fine mesh goes a long way too. And thinking about the fuel in your yard um, as trying to sort of make it so that there's no clear path for fire to burn immediately straight up to your house. And there's a lot, of course, a lot more specifics and nuance here. But in the basics, you know, he tries to reframe fire. You know, the issue isn't wildfire itself; it's how we've built in its path, really. And and in that vein, the hope being that we can feel a little more in control, maybe, or a little more empowered to do something about it. Uh, we're talking with Nick Mott and Justin Engel, co-authors of This is Wildfire, How to Protect Yourself, Your Home, and Your Community in the Age of Heat. And I want to invite you, our listeners, to join the conversation. What steps have you taken to protect yourself or your home or community? Have you been directly affected by a wildfire? How do you reflect on that now? What do you take from that experience that people might find surprising. What does adapting to the inevitability of wildfire mean to you? You can email forum at kqed.org, post on our social channels at KQED Forum, or call us at 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. More after the break. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. 
Wildfires are becoming more intense and destructive, and more and more of us live in areas vulnerable to fire. But we can adapt, according to Justin Engel, professor at the University of Montana College of Business, and Nick Mott, a journalist and podcast producer. Both are authors of the new book, This is Wildfire. And you, our listeners, are joining the conversation with steps you've taken to try to adapt or questions you have about how to adapt effectively and what adapting to the inevitability of wildfire means to you. You can join us at 866-733-6786 by emailing forum and by posting on our social channels. Tater on Discord writes, I cannot stress enough the importance of defensible space. The probability of your home surviving is exponentially higher if you make sure flammable vegetation is cleared from 100 feet all around your house. That doesn't mean no plants at all, but a low-growing perennial like California's native strawberry or a regular lawn are both good options. If you have neighbors within 100 feet, work with them to maintain an appropriate space around the border of your community. Wow, Justin, it sounds like um, Tater read your book because when you talk about this, one of the first things you talk about is, quote unquote, the home ignition zone, the 100 feet surrounding your home. Can you walk us through what Tater is describing, what to look for uh, when you're looking at this immediate zone? Yeah, that note from Tater is, is spot on. And all of these insights sort of are downstream of the insights from Dr. Jack Cohen that um, Nick was mentioning before the break, that looking at your house, considering your house as a source of fuel for the fire can help you think about how to create this notion of defensible space around it, the home ignition zone. And thinking of the home ignition as being caused by, commonly caused by a floating ember, that helps you think about how to construct defenses. The area closest to the home, from zero to five feet from the home, and including the home itself, is the most important. So keeping debris and vegetation clear of the home, keeping your gutters clean, making sure the, you know, your your vents and your soffits have mesh um covering them so embers cannot float into the you know attic spaces and inside the structure um replacing a wooden roof with a, a non-flammable roof ideally um a steel roof so thinking of the defenses immediately around the home is the most expensive things like fences you don't want fences that are wood or flammable connecting directly to the home cuz a fence can basically deliver fire to the home mm. Think about your deck. Are you cleaning out the spaces between the boards of your deck? Are they are those spaces wide enough that um, debris doesn't just sort of gather in there? Um, are you storing flammable stuff under your deck? Do you have fuel cans there? How close are vehicles to your home um, or you, you know other gas powered equipment that could catch fire? You know or be a vulnerability. And then as you think out from the house. You know, the, the five to 30 foot level is another area of consideration. Think about how densely um, organized the trees are. How close is the canopy to the home? You want it to be at least 10 feet from the roof or any other part of the home. Think about how um, that debris, it, it, you know, as the seasons change will fall and where that debris will land. And is that a source of fuel? Um, this this concept of fuel throughout this home ignition zone is, I think, something to really kind of keep in mind. Where are the sources of fuel? How close are they to the structure? And where are the vulnerabilities? 
Um, as you get further out, certainly, as, as Tater did mention, you can have vegetation, but you want to think about, is it spread apart or does it, you know, is it, is it, is it organized in such a way that if, if it catches fire, will that fire spread to another vegetation, you know, piece of vegetation or to the home or to the fence, or will it be isolated in such a way that you can get a handle on it? Um, yeah. There are source, there are types of vegetation that are more resilient to wildfire. We can get into that, but basically, yeah, that home ignition zone, that hundred feet around the home, you want to be thinking about. And a lot of another piece of this too is that it's not just your home. If you, many listeners think about your home, within a hundred feet of it, there's probably another home, right? Maybe more than one. You have neighbors, and so. You know, to the extent that your house is resilient to wildfire, that's helps your neighbors be resilient to wildfire. But the inverse is also true. If your neighbors aren't doing the work, then your house is at risk. You know, once a fire takes hold, we 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 said that the the most likely cause of a home ignition is a floating ember. But once a fire ignites a structure in a home, the single biggest risk is now that burning home to other homes. So. This is really a collective action problem and you need to be, you know, if, if you have the initiative and it sounds like Tater certainly does to, to take these steps at your own home, try to be a good neighbor and encourage others to do it. Spread the word, create uh, community organizations, try to think of this as a, as a community level um, source of action. Yeah. Uh, well, along those lines about how we do have to rely on each other to mitigate wildfire risks, this listener writes, I started a fire safe council in my city, Point Arena. Most people in town don't have 100 feet in front of their homes to clear for defensible space. Our fire safe council has become an overall preparedness group for earthquake, fire and extreme weather. We focus on personal preparedness and how that supports community preparedness and resiliency. This is particularly important for our city because we can become an island in a relatively short period of time. Flooded roadways, trees down and mudslides. Um, Nick, Justin mentioned not just how to deal with plants in this defensible space in the home ignition zone, even the intermediate and extended zones, but also the types of plants and trees that are more likely to... Do you want to just talk a little bit about some of the things that uh, we might consider with regard to the types of vegetation itself? You know, I'll talk just a little bit about that and then address also that comments a little more. Um, you know, I think when you hear defensible space and you hear you got to get rid of all that vegetation, you might, it kind of sounds ugly, right? It's kind of <laughs> like, oh, I got to get rid of all the trees. I got to get rid of, you know, the nice flowers and, and bushes and the stuff that like I maybe spent a bunch of money or years growing and cultivating in my yard, but that's not necessarily the case. So, you know, the, the pl specific plants that we'd recommend, uh, it depends on where you live. Um, you know, there are probably some things that are uni universally good but uh you know that you can you can do some googling and talk with organizations like the listeners um uh, that can help you really guide tailor advice to to your specific situation you know some bigger scale advice is things like you know maybe having wood mulch next to your house isn't the best idea if you're in a fire prone area you switch to maybe gravel or stuff that's not quite so flammable you know some plants have basically flammable stuff and then they will ignite very easily and others don't. Um, so we need to look for plants that are adapted to fire and that don't burn. 
Um, but sort of bigger picture, you know, our listener wrote about starting an organization in, in their own community that's not just for fires, but for earthquakes and other disasters. And that is so important. I think that's such a good step, you know, and organizations like that do exist across the country. The hard part can be knowing they exist in your area. You know, you could be there could be one in your community or in your neighborhood you might not know. You know, so and because there's no there are some databases of organizations that promote what's called firewise behavior or other you know organizations like this. But it's it's hard to get cued into like what's going around. And, you know, disasters like fire are so unfortunate, but they're also an opportunity to connect with your neighborhood, to connect with your community. And, you know, the great thing about local organizations, too, is it means you're not in it by yourself. So you can. You know, one, you have other people to help support you. There are also things like tool libraries sprouting up across the country. And two, you can tailor solutions specific to your property. So, you know, we, Justin and I live in Montana and there are organizations here that, you know, you will send somebody out to look at your property and help you assess what you get need to get done, what can get done quickly and first and stuff that might be a little longer and more time intensive, or maybe even things that you get some grants to get done. Um, so organizations like our listener wrote about it are so important to, re- to getting the work done and getting it done at the scale that communities really need. Yeah. Let me go to some calls. Jen in San Jose, join us. You're on. Hi, Jen. Are you now? Yes. Can you hear me? I can now. Hello? Yep. Okay. Thank you. Um, I thank you for this program. It's really important to hear about um, fire and how we um, and how we take care of it. Um, and I just wanted to point out that um, I've done a lot of reading about indigenous people and how they have used um, fire to um, protect their land for mm. thousands of years. And just the importance of knowing that and not um, not thinking that it was just started in 1950. And then also I just wanted to point out that um, replacing plants is another option. Um, and um, indigenous plants um, uh, are a good solution to um, the um, the other kind. Thank you. Yeah. No, Jen, thank you. Such Both such relevant and important points. And, you know, it's actually making me think, Justin, about what's happening in Canada, because you were making the point earlier about how fires have reached a point where, I mean, a lot of the fire is burning and they're letting it burn to some extent if it's in a non-populated area. But but also in part because containment is impossible with some of the intensity that we're seeing. But uh, there was there was a recent piece in the New York Times that was talking about how not just forest managers, but even logging companies are drawing in part on traditional indigenous forestry practices to clear, you know, debris, clear ground cover, and so on, while actually leaving the most resilient and maybe even the most valuable timber um, there. And, and that, it, in part, this logging company is doing this because I believe they are run by an indigenous group. And and so do you want to just say anything about, because I know you and Nick both touch on just the importance of indigenous forestry practices throughout this as wildfire. Yeah, the listeners is, is spot on. And, you know, indigenous peoples have been living in coexisting with wildfire for millennia and the wisdom um, within that culture is is really nothing new. It's it's sort of the rise of you know when the white folks started colonizing the country is when we started suppressing wildfire and thinking of it as this bad thing. Um, and a lot of that indigenous uh, 
tradition kind of stems from the recognition that fire is a natural part of the landscape, that it's not something to be feared or controlled. It's certainly something to be respected. So a lot of those um, folks would allow fire to run its course, wouldn't attempt to put it out. But at the same time, they would use fire to um, manage the landscape. It wasn't as if, you know, the humans managing the landscape has been going on for you know, millennia, but indigenous cultures would manage it in such a way to keep it in balance. And we spent uh, an afternoon on an area north of Missoula on the Flathead Indian Reservation called the Jocko Prairie. And this was an area that had sort of been allowed to be managed to Western uh, standards and fire had been excluded from that landscape for a long time. And not only that, cattle had been grazing in that area. And so the forest was clogged and um you know ugly in a way and not a pleasant place to go and the tribe wanted to reintroduce fire to that landscape and it took a lot of work to get that done to set up the right conditions and systems and get uh, community buy-in and once they did introduce fire it it cleaned out the understory it thinned the forest it eliminated a lot of that fuel that could be used to transport a fire rapidly if if a if a you know if a large fire came down from the mountains into the prairie um and one of the other outcomes of managing you know of introducing fire and allowing it to play its more natural role on that landscape is a lot of the native species of plants came back camas uh, a very important flower um to the tribe had not existed on that landscape for you know a, a hundred years or in, in any living person's real memory and within a year of reintroducing fire to that landscape the camas came back and a lot of the traditional practices were allowed to come back because of the availability of the camas so there, there's a lot of dimensions to this the listener's core insight though is that this living in knowing how to coexist with fire and seeing it and allowing it to play its natural role on the landscape is something we need to start moving toward at the national level, at the agency level. The Forest Service needs to do more of this, CAL FIRE, all the land management agencies need to be, you know, and, and to their credit, like I think they're they're trying to introduce more fire to the landscape, but that's really hard to do. And we can talk about the reasons why it's hard to do, um, but a lot of insight from the indigenous um, practices that have been around for for millennia are, are, are really important for us to keep in mind right now. Yeah, no, and yeah. Just to go ahead, Nick. Just to jump in a couple more points on the, on this same same issue is you know I think it's important to point out that as fire was suppressed for a hundred years, so was indigenous use of fire. I mean, often violently suppressed. Yeah. Uh, there are accounts of of people killed over using fire traditionally. Um, and, you know, it's not just the Confederated Salish and Kootenai tribes that Justin mentioned bringing fire back to the landscape. There is cultural revitalization in tribes across the country, including in California, um, to, to use fire on the landscape. And what Justin alluded to as well is, you know, what, what was part of, of life for indigenous peoples and, and for many still is, but the Forest Service calls prescribed burning, which means carefully controlled, but intentionally lit low intensity fires on the landscape. And that's what many people say, you know, at the landscape scale, we need a whole lot more of. Uh, so just, just a couple more points there. Thanks. 
Well, Rebecca writes, there have been recent stories in the news that have sounded an alarm on the negative long-term health effects of breathing wildfire smoke. What is the best way to protect ourselves? Nick, do you want to respond? Sure. So a couple things. I mean, one is make sure you have some kind of an air filter. So you can purchase a HEPA filter online if that's unaffordable, which for many folks it, it is. They can be very expensive. You can actually make a makeshift air filter with just a box fan and, you know, a furnace filter. Just make sure it's it's HEPA certified. You know, other things is, you know, you might want to like going outside and hiking might be part of your daily life on those smokiest of days. It might be best to stay inside if that option's available to you. For a lot of folks, that option might not be available if you work outside, which is the case for a lot of people that experience smoke. And that's the reason that a lot of that, you know, for example, farm workers can experience some really devastating health impacts of smoke. You know, one thing that can help mitigate those situations is N95 masks. You know, we've gotten used to those, unfortunately, during COVID, uh, but they can also do a number to help, you know, reduce the health impacts of smoke. So, you know, the, the nutshell meth message is stay inside when you can and purify your air. Let me go to Chris in Napa next. Hi, Chris, you're on. Yes, hi. Um, yes, I was wondering if your guest could speak to good forest thinning versus bad forest thinning and um, how uh, big trees are important in the health of the, the forest mm -hmm. and all of this in the face of climate change yeah. and how that changes the calculus. Chris, thanks. Justin, do you want to talk about that? Yeah, I think that's a good point. There's a lot of, of, of nuance here, and it's it, it sort of calls out the importance of citizens being aware of what's being proposed by the agencies and how those proposals are going to be executed. Um, so we know that clear cutting, for example, it can't create defensible space, right? It can't create a fuel break, but it can be devastating to a landscape for a whole host of other reasons. A lot of times when a forest is clogged, it is some of the low value timber that needs to be um, cleared out and thinned. Yep. And those are often the sorts of um, the sort of timber that's a little less economic, even uneconomic to to clear out. So, you know, there it's important to be informed, as I said before. So when you know a forest project is being proposed, Get into the weeds of that proposal. Try to understand it and voice your opinion. The Forest Service, to their credit, has a, has a robust public comment process. Engage in that process and stand up for what you think is right. Yeah. yeah just don't determine which trees to cut based on how much money you'll make from them. <laughs> we'll have more after the break. Stay with us. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We need to reformulate our relationship to wildfire because of its inevitability, say my guest Nick Mott, a journalist and podcast producer, and Justin Engel, professor at the University of Montana College of Business. They're co-authors of This is Wildfire, How to Protect Yourself, Your Home, and Your Community in the Age of Heat. Listeners, what steps have you taken to protect yourself, or what questions do you have about how to do it effectively? Have you been affected by a wildfire? What reflections do you have about living with it as fires grow more intense. Email forum at kqed.org. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, Discord. We're at KQED Forum. Call us at 866-733-6786. Irene in Pleasanton, join us. Thanks for waiting. You're on. Hi. Um, I just wanted you to know that uh, we have a home in the Keys in South Lake Tahoe. So last year we had the whole house insulated with um, Air Creek, and it may be a little more expensive, but it's well worth it. You could put a, bl- a blowtorch to that, and it won't burn. Hmm. And it's ironic because after the men had finished the job, they weren't even quite finished. When we had to evac, they had to evacuate because of the fires approaching uh, South Lake Tahoe. So I just wanted to say that insulation in a home also has. Um, uh, a solution to yeah. uh, protecting your property. Thank you, Irene, uh, for that. And uh, Justin, do you want to say more about that? And and I think Irene is bringing us into the points that you and Nick have made about the importance of hardening your home. Yeah, the you know the listeners is is correct there. Like there's there's a lot of different innovation happening in building materials right now, materials that are much more. Uh, resistant to wildfire. We can't call them fireproof, right? Um, no house can be totally fireproof. Um, but you you can, if you're renovating your home or building a new home, there are all sorts of materials you can use. And I think it's it it, it behooves the listener or, or anybody building in a fire-prone landscape to be pushing for those sorts of materials. Now, those sorts of materials can be more expensive, mm. but they contribute to making a home that is is more resilient to fire. I think too that building codes are going to need to be updated and you know what's going on in the insurance market particularly in California is is interesting and will you know will there be space to innovate policies such that if you build with you know particular um, design and materials, can you get insured at different rates? You know, and will that flow into the mortgage market? So I think there's sort of individual home level, structure level issues here that can be addressed if you have the means, but also some higher order sort of system level concerns we need to have around codes and financing and insurance as well. Mm. Well, um, Jay asks, if floating embers are the cause of fire spread, how do you realistically create defensible space in dense urban neighborhoods? My neighbor's house is less than 10 feet away, not to mention street tree canopy being a potential risk. Nick, what would you say to Jay? 
You know, I think that Jay's point is an excellent one. And that's one of the things that makes the wildfire in issues so tricky in urban areas. Because often your defensible space is also your neighbor's defensible space. It's all overlapping. And so if you don't get the work done at a community scale, the work might not be all that meaningful. So I would say as an individual, do the work you can in your own yard. But we need organizations like a previous listener wrote about that can work at the more community scale. We need, you know, as some people get work done in their property, that can establish norms, make it more normal to have things like a metal roof or this different sort of landscaping and vegetation in your yard or thinner trees. You know, there are, it's not just a individual oriented solution here. It's a community oriented solution. And, you know, Justin mentioned the importance of, of zoning and codes. And we also need investment from, you know, cities and counties and the federal government to get this work done. Like, you know, insulation that our, that our caller talked about is expensive. Metal roofs are extremely expensive. And, you know, folks just don't have that money. <laughs> so if we want to build sustainably and live sustainably with wildfire, we have to not just tackle this ourselves, but tackle it together. And that includes with our, our, our local and federal governments. Yeah. But what about someone who says urban areas? The people who really need to worry about this are people who live in the WUI, the Wildland Urban Interface. What would you say to that, Nick? I think that, you know, you might be surprised who's in the wildland urban interface. So to back up for a second, the WUI or wildland urban interface is you know, sort of the area where homes and flammable stuff like trees and vegetation intermingle. And it's the fastest growing area in the country. Tens of millions of people live there. And what you'd be surprised is if we look at areas where homes burn. So we have the Maui fire recently. That's certainly not a rural community. The Marshall fire bur burnt the suburbs of, of, of Denver in Boulder County, Colorado, in a very suburban area. Like fire risk isn't always just where those pine trees are growing. And often, you know, it's actually where we see that sort of tall grass, that prairie, because that fire can burn very fast with little warning. So, you know, both look at resources to tell you if you're in um, a wildfire prone area. I'm terrible with web addresses, but I think it's wildfirerisk.org is a good one. You can enter your address and see if it's um, if, it, if you're prone to wildfire to what extent you are, but also talk to folks in your area. Look and see if there are organizations dedicated to you know, fire resilience. And uh, you can get somebody to assess what's going on in your property. What can you do? What is your risk? And just look at your property with a careful eye. Like, do I have trees that are close together, trees that are going over my roof? Do I have tall grass nearby that could burn and create a fire hazard here? Um, you know, fire hazards aren't just the sort of stereotypical, you know, home among big ponderosas that we might think about. Well, Edie writes, I live in Oakland where we have yearly fire inspections. Ornamental bushes and trees are exempt even if they are within 10 feet or 5 feet of the home. I see many of my neighbors with trees overhanging their roof and bushes planted right against the wall. And the Oakland City website says they don't endorse tree removal even if it is within that 5 to 10 feet. I feel the fire inspections are just performative as they don't address larger vegetation. Your guest said it is about community action, but it should be about zoning and code. I think, Justin, you were talking about that in relation to home hardening, but Edie is also talking about it in relation to vegetation and fire inspections as well. Um, let me go to caller John in Calistoga next. John, join us. You're on. Hi. Uh, my point, uh, you know, I've, I'm from Calistoga. We went to the Tubbs fire. Uh, I actually live in Lake County. We lived through the, the Valley fire. So many fires in this area. But the point is it's a rural area. A lot of times it's with weekend uh, 
you know, people who have weekend homes up here, they're not familiar with their neighbors. They're not familiar with the layout. There's usually one way in, one way out, and they don't understand the alternate routes to come in and out. And I think that's uh, one of the things that saved many lives in, in the Tubbs fire was uh, one of the chiefs who had grown up here opened up vineyards to get people out safely. And uh, he's since passed, but he's a hero. So just remember that, you know, you need to – you need to understand, and and I think one of my I, to that point, we've become a little bit of an isolated, you know, privacy centric society, and we are not talking to our neighbors, and we're not establishing those alternate routes and, uh, during during these times. So mm-hmm. again, these people did not understand where you know, and it's happening more and more. You you hear that people are stuck at Paradise Fire. Obviously, was a was a horrible situation where they just had one way in and out. They didn't have alternate routes, and I think those need to be established. Um, yeah, and clearly, you know, put out there, and even maps made if that were you know appropriate. Well, well, John, thanks for that. It's amazing how often the through line in natural um, or just terrible disasters like wildfires or earthquakes is the importance of knowing your neighbors. Um, uh, Justin, would you, did you want to comment or respond at all to John? Yeah, I think John makes a, a really valuable point. And the notion that a, a lot of rural areas are isolated, you know, it's one of the reasons that they're attractive to so many folks. People want that space. They want that privacy. Um, and they also sometimes either want or... Uh, you know, want to be able to build according to their own standards, or, you know, maybe it's the only place they can afford. Um, but a lot of times the infrastructure in those in those areas isn't quite uh, the same. You know, they're, they're not building codes. They're, they're those one way in, one way out types of roads. A lot of times those roads are inaccessible to, to fire engines and other sorts of services. So the conditions there are are a little different than in an urban setting. Um, and I do think some of this, you know, as we build more and more into these spaces with more density, we're going to have to think hard about, you know, not only the infrastructure that is is brought into those spaces, but also, you know, how are how are we bringing that community together? How are we encouraging the folks that are that are moving into these spaces to take the responsibility um, to be good neighbors, to be a part of fire resilience in that community, and um, try to set up those try to try to facilitate those sorts that sort of community level coordinate coordinate uh, coordination. Yeah, I mean, I I know that people have made arguments that we shouldn't be building in the WUI at all. But when I hear Nick say the stats about how many of us really do, and, uh, you know, looking at and might be surprised to find that our area is vulnerable, um, it, it does feel a little bit like it's, it's, it's too late to stop. And it's much more about what we do now, uh, as a result of all the people um, who are there and, and what we can do to make sure that we manage a fire better. Let me go to caller Rob in San Francisco. Rob, you're on. Hi, thank you. Um, I Well, first of all, I wanted to mention, I wonder why homeowners that live in fire-prone areas don't get sprinkler systems for their roof. Mm. It just seems like some kind of technology that might, you know, prevent a lot of homes from burning down. Um, but I have a, a comment about just the general forest itself. We have a uh, some property in the Stanislaus National Forest in a remote cabin. We're about 17 miles from Tuolumne City, 
And we were devastated by the rim fire. And mm. the problem I see out in the forest itself is there's so many years of no management uh, as far as thinning goes. You know, you've got this accumulation of dense trees and brush and other trees, and nobody ever goes in and does any logging to thin it, you know, to prevent these massive fires from getting so big. I saw a project um, actually up in South Lake Tahoe, close to Pope Beach, where they went and they thinned it, and it looks fantastic. I mean, it looks like, you know, if, if a fire were to get going in there, it might not get into a crown fire and take out, you know, thousands and thousands of acres. But right. it doesn't seem like the Forest Service does any kind of a, a big project because of funding, you know, to go in and thin. I mean, maybe we need something like a CCC program to go in and just gradually work through it. I know it's a massive job, but um, especially areas around, you know, like Yosemite and national parks, things that we really want to save, we really need to go in and do some work uh, to prevent fires from becoming explosively massive, like what happened with the Rim Fire. Yeah. Rob, thanks for the call. And let me remind listeners that you are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Um, do you want to talk about Nick, where we are in California, if you have any insights in terms of our forest management practices and how they have evolved to what we are doing now, like, are we doing what's needed? Where are we at in that sort of evolution from suppression to to thinning and prescribed burns? Yeah, that's such a good question and such a good comment from our listener. So the, the, there's so much trickiness with forest projects, and that goes to sort of the evolution of the Forest Service as a whole. Like the Forest Service was created originally, you know, under the Department of Agriculture, which a lot of people might not expect, because trees were treated as, as crops, as these resources for the future for things like building homes, which are now being built in, in the wildland urban interface. And, you know, there's a long legacy of things like clear cutting that were pretty ecologically detrimental in many cases, and just an eyesore for a lot of people that valued forests. So there was sort of, a, there was, you know, what's called the timber wars um, back in the late 80s and early 90s over the northern spotted owl habitat and clear cuts and the sort of timber industry as a whole declined over the last 30 years uh, for a number of reasons, including spotted owl habitat, but also mechanization and other changes in the market. But, you know, forest projects for decades were tied up with economics. They were tied up with timber harvest. So with cutting big trees that could earn you a lot of money. Now that's not the Forest Service's only mandate, but it is one of their mandates. Like the Forest Service does have a quota for X number of board feet per year. And that's really hard to meet without funding, without a viable timber industry in many places. And how, and when you think differently about what trees to harvest. So we've mm -hmm. also learned a ton about ecology over this last half century or so. And like Justin mentioned earlier, some of the trees that we need to get rid of are these sort of smaller trees, this newer growth growing up in between those older trees that would have, that are fire adapted. You know, these are the things that would have naturally burnt up in historic wildfires that we've suppressed. So the challenge here is doing that work in places that matter and in, in ways that are that work for the Forest Service and for communities and are ecologically sensitive. And, um, you know, one thing we can also talk about is the, uh, you know, what, what science says is most effective. So we for the book, for example, we talked with the University of Washington researcher named Susan Pritchard, who studied, you know, how fire interacted with areas that had been thinned and clear cut and areas that had basically been managed in Washington and not and both the sort of 
a pretty big fire and just enormous, huge mega fire. And what she found is that what makes for a resilient forest isn't just thinning it out and clearing it out. It's when you thin the forest followed by a prescribed burn. So what we need to get done at a landscape scale is forest thinning, getting rid of some of that undergrowth, followed by prescribed burning. The challenge getting that done is having the staffing to do it, having the funding to do it, and all the environmental review that goes into it. In part because of the mistrust over the timber industry for so long, there's some animosity between lots of people and, and, and suspicion between people and the Forest Service. So I think sort of the institutions themselves can do a much better job at communicating at why forest projects are important and what they're actually going to do. And we as citizens can do better at getting involved in the process to let, let know where this stuff could be done. And the scale of the problem is some of the most daunting part. Like we just need to treat so many forests and so many swaths of so many forests we need we need huge investment in it, and that investment's not just money. It's also it's also resources and and communication about it. Yeah. Well, we're coming up to the end of the hour, and you know when I think about prescribed burns and and trying to reframe our relationship to wildfire, I did want to talk a little bit about we've talked a lot about preparing and trying to manage and mitigate, um, but you do also Justin talk about how to reframe our thinking after a burn. Um, and, you know, in California, many of us pass burn scars all over the state, right, wherever we go. And I'm wondering if you would like to leave our California listeners with some new thinking about how to feel when we see those. <laughs> Justin? There's often a sense of loss when a landscape changes, right? And we call that condition solastasia. And I'd encourage listeners to put themselves into landscapes that have recently burned and see and experience the life that comes back really quickly. Wildfire, wildfire, wildflowers coming back into bloom and the beauty of the colors and the change in that landscape. Certainly it can be devastating and can, you know, homes can be lost, lives can be lost. And, but there is not only a natural role that fire plays on the landscape, but there is a beauty that it reintroduces. It's part of a healthy ecosystem in many locations. So I'd encourage people to sort of try to be open to that attitude, but also to put themselves in those landscapes and, and, and try to experience it because there is a, a beauty in watching a, a forest come back to life in a different way. Well, Justin Engel, thank you so much for talking with us today. Thank you. Nick Mott, also so glad to have you on as well. Thank you so much. And thanks to all the listeners who wrote and called in. Yeah, such great comments and calls from our listeners. Nick Mott and Justin Engel are co-authors of This is Wildfire. And uh, Susie Britton produced today's segment. My thanks to her and my thanks to you as always. You've been listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. 
Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.